0: It's the time of the season When love runs high In this time Give it to me easy And let me try With pleasured hands To take you in the sun To promise
1: Welcome to Inside Your Head, this is Nasty Neil, and I'm joined by Colin Blunston, lead singer of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band, The Zombies, and it's very cool to have you here.
2: Thank you very much, Neil. great to be on your show.
1: Yeah. And so, I'm in Massachusetts, and coming up uh, August 23rd, you guys are going to be at the Cabot in uh, in Beverly, Massachusetts. And uh, since your original uh, run was uh, 64 to 67, are you ever surprised that you guys are still performing the songs and the songs are still like so popular
2: I am I'm, I am I am, but very pleasantly surprised you're right, you're um, right.
1: I didn't think you're yeah, upset prob- about I'm it I'm
2: probably more surprised than anybody else in the world you know I wasn't expecting this so I think mean, when we came into the business in 1964 I think that generally speaking, speaking people considered that a career a good career would be like two or three years and that was it and then you got on with the rest of your life and I think that's kind of how I felt as well. Two or three years on the road with the zombies. It'd be a wonderful adventure. And then I would get on with the rest of my life. And, you know, as you just said, here we are, 50 years later, still playing. But it's great. I mean, believe me, we all really appreciate the, the fact that we've been so fortunate to do what we love um, for all our lives and, and to, to get out and play for people. And, and actually, that's our career. So uh, we're very fortunate, very fortunate.
1: Yeah, I noticed on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, um, it was clear, it was like evident, that you guys really love uh, performing, and uh, you've never lost that uh, throughout the fifty years. You've always uh, had that love of uh, performing the music.
2: Uh, well, we do love. Uh, we really do love uh, performing, and that, that's why we do it. We wouldn't do it if we uh, if we didn't enjoy it, and I'm sure that we'll keep on performing. I mean, we have talked about this, not in great depth, but it's really it's just in a way it's just sort of common sense really that obviously there probably will be physical limitations and what we can do as the years go by and we'll know when it's time to slow down. I don't think we'll just stop, but we'll we'll probably slow down and gradually come to um, some kind of retirement agreement. But it's certainly <laughs> not going to be in the next couple of years. Yeah, exactly.
1: So, uh, Were you and Rod Argent uh, friends before the Zombies?
2: No, we weren't, actually. I didn't know him at all. We had a friend in common. Uh, the band originally went to uh, two schools in a place called St. Albans in Hertfordshire. And there was a guy that went to my school that was a neighbor of Rod Argent's. He didn't know him from school. He lived just up the road from him. And so the, the guy at my school, just, my audition went like this. He, he said to me, you've got a guitar, haven't you? And I said, yes. And he said, do you want to be in a band? And that was it. That was my audition. And I was in. Um, but I didn't really know the other guys. They went to another school, which was probably, there's no way I would have ever met them if so it wasn't for this one common link. He was called Paul Arnold. He's the only guy who left the band, actually, in the end. He wanted to be a doctor, and his studies wouldn't let him rehearse. You know, it sort of restricted the time he had for rehearsals. And he He became a doctor, and he's in Edmonton in Canada now. And whenever we go up there, he always comes along to the gigs, and we always get him some applause, get the spotlight on him, and he he takes (laughs) a bow. So Paul Arnold is responsible for getting me into the zombies, and I'm eternally grateful to him.
1: Yeah. So I, I read that um, that uh, Rod was originally to be the vocalist, and then um, you were the you were going to be guitarist. So how did it, it come to be that you uh, end up the singer?
2: Well, I mean, it was at the first rehearsal. As I said, I didn't know the other guys. I only knew Paul Arnold, who was the bass player. And um, we started off. We played an instrumental, and it was called Malaguena. And because it obviously is an instrumental, Rod's going to be the lead vocalist. He didn't really do anything. Uh, and, but uh, we had a break to have a coffee. And he went over to a corner of this, uh, it was a, a, a sort of a teenager's club type place called the Pioneer Club in St. Albans in Hertfordshire. And he went over in the corner and there was a broken down old piano. And he just sat down and he played a hit of the time. It's a sort of rock and roll boogie thing. It's called uh, Nut Rocker by B. Bumble and the Stingers. And it's it's a take on a classical piece really, but it's just given a bit of a boogie woogie treatment. And uh, he was sensational, for it, in a different league to us completely. And although I didn't know him, I just met him. I just went over and said, "Really, you should play keyboards in this band. This is ridiculous." And he said, "No, we want this to be a rock and roll band. It's got to be three guitars. We don't want keyboards." And it was left like that until the end of the rehearsal. I was about to put my guitar away, and I, you know, I was a fairly limited guitarist, um, and I just sang a little bit of a song in a corner to myself, not to anyone else, but Rod heard me. Again, it's chance, you know, and he came over and he said, I tell you what, if you'll be the lead singer, I'll play keyboards in the band, and that essentially was how the Zombies have stayed ever since, for 50-something years. So um, it, it it was Chance, if he hadn't gone over and played that piano, if I hadn't have just sung a little bit uh, as I was putting my guitar away, um, perhaps things would have been very different.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's wild. So uh, I'm a lifetime uh, George Romero fan of like, uh, horror movies, so I have to ask, because the zombies you know, predate you know, Night of the Living Dead before the zombie movie's craze takes off. So do you know what like the uh, like the the thought was behind the name of the zombies? I guess more voodoo zombies?
2: I think it was, um, I always say in a very light way, I think it was a lot to do with desperation, really, in that all bands need a name. And to tell you the honest truth, for about a week we were called the Mustangs, okay. and then for another week we were called the Sundowners. And I mean, they're just disastrous names. <laughs> and that same guy who went on and became a doctor in Edmonton, he came up with it, he said, what about the Zombies? And to tell you the truth, I'm not sure I really knew what a zombie was. In fact, I'm not even sure I know what a zombie is now. But um, it was catchy, and it stuck. And um, so every band needs a name, and we were just desperately throwing out ideas, and that one came up, and it stuck.
0: Yeah.
1: So uh, how early on, when you guys are playing, do you think, uh, or maybe you never thought, I don't know, do you think, like, this is, this is good, this is working, and, you know, this could be something big?
2: Uh, I I think that uh, what happened after about three years, we were talking about, uh, I don't know what happened, we won a rock and roll competition, quite a big rock and roll, and then it really took us by surprise. We, We just entered for fun, you know, and there were 10 bands a night, and it went on for 10 weeks, so there were 100 bands, and we won, and I don't think anybody said anything that night, but... I think we were all thinking, you know, maybe, just maybe there's a chance that we could do something. And eventually we did talk about it and decided that, yeah, we would all buy an old truck and and just go out and be a professional band. We have no idea what you're supposed to do. We're just going to do it. Um, But that competition also led to a recording contract with Decca Records. And at the first session we recorded the record, um, She's Not There. Mm. And it became a huge hit, but we'd already decided we wanted to be a professional band. But of course, that changed the course of of our history anyway. Um, Mm. When you have a huge worldwide hit like that, um, where you're going to play next week is all taken care of for you by agents and managers. Mm. And so we were already going to try and be a professional band, but we had this monster hit. And um, everything from there on. I mean, it just changed our lives forever. Of course, it did. She's not there. Changed all our lives forever.
1: Yeah, you were uh, what nineteen when that when that comes out?
2: Yeah, I, yeah. I was. Rod and I were eighteen when we recorded it, but nineteen when it came out. So we were very young, and of course, we had to learn. We had to learn the ropes in the music business and try and learn them very quickly. But like a lot of other. 60s bands, we were ripped off mercilessly, I'm afraid, um, during those three years. And that's one of the reasons why the band didn't keep going for very long, because the three non-writers, that would be myself, Paul Atkinson, and Hugh Grundy, because of the way we were managed, we literally, at the end of three years and having a couple of big hit records we were absolutely broke. We didn't have big cars, we didn't have our houses, we didn't have anything, and we certainly didn't have money. Um, The other two were more fortunate because they did the songwriting, and our then-manager didn't manage to get involved in the royalties from songwriting. He only got, um, really, money from us playing live, and uh, (laughs) none of the money ever got through to us. And that is one of the main reasons why the band folded in the end. Mm-hmm.
1: Did that lead to any um, at the time, like tension between you and Rod? Since uh, you know he w- he made money off writing the songs, and and uh, you know the band splits, uh, you you to split up, and you you know you're broke.
2: I don't think so, really, because uh, I've always been a huge fan of of uh, firstly Rod's musicianship, mm-hmm. and secondly his songwriting. And, and also, of course, Chris White's songwriting as well. And I thought that they should be rewarded for the fabulous songs that they wrote. Sure. But I also thought that the band should have been rewarded for right. their constant touring. And uh, it was just very unfortunate. So I didn't... No, I I, I wasn't jealous of them. I was, I was somewhat dissatisfied with the uh, financial arrangements regarding um, us touring.
1: Yeah. Yeah, but more with like uh, your manager, or who, not necessarily. Oh, yeah, I mean, band.
2: I I don't know how he had the heart to do it. He was absolutely merciless. But um, a lot of managers were like that. I you know I always want to emphasize it wasn't just us. Most bands in the '60s, certain, certainly most British bands in the '60s, really didn't make much money, although they were selling truckloads of records and touring constantly. And it it is it is very dis- uh disappointing you know it just leaves you feeling extremely flat after a period of time you know in that three years from 64 to sixty seven we were touring constantly, and if, you know you you just you become very tired, and at the end of it, when you see all the money just sort of going <laughs> yeah. out to everybody else it 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 is incredibly disappointing
1: how is that to because you'd still be young, you know very young at the time in your early twenties. And then uh, go from, you know, this big success, and uh, and then you don't have any money in, in a few years. Like, how hard is that to deal with, you know, uh, as a human being? Well, it is
2: quite hard to deal with. Uh, but in one way, we were quite fortunate. The non-writers, anyway, we never had any money. So it wasn't as right. though we'd had money, and right. then we didn't have money. We never had money. So it was the whole three years, it was a real struggle. Um, you know, but it's life it, it it's fine um, it takes time to learn how the how the business works i'm not sure i'm particularly qualified to talk about the business <laughs> now it's always been a bit of a mystery to me but uh, at least i know a few basic rules uh, about the business now and uh, when the band finished I, I i felt very very i felt devastated you know and uh, i thought that was the music business finish for me i i was just talked into doing a little bit of recording in the evenings um, over the next few months after the Zombies finished. And one of those tracks went on to be a small hit in the UK. And that kind of opened the door for me to get back into the music business. At one time, I didn't think I would I play professionally again. Uh, I, I just felt so devastated that the band had finished.
1: Yeah. So when you first uh, become a solo star, you, know, you changed the name. What was uh, the thought process there?
2: The, well, it was. Just, it's hard to explain the logic behind this, because I'm not sure there is much logic. But <laughs> um, when Time of the Season was a hit single in the States, nearly a year after, probably was a year after the band finished, and funnily enough, Time of the Season was never a hit in the U.K., but it was a hit in just about every other country around the world. Um, but people in the, the producers and record companies knew that it was a hit in the States, and they started calling me and contacting me and seeing if I would get back in the business. And one guy called Mike Hurst, who was a producer, and he produced the early Cat Stevens records, um, uh, Matthew and Son, I'm Going to Get Me a Gun, and some great classic tracks. I'm not absolutely sure if there were hits in America, but there were certainly big hits here. And he started calling me and saying, you should record again. And eventually I started recording again. And he got the idea. But that's when I was recording in the evenings. I just got an office job, a very ordinary office job, first job I could get. And uh, because I was flat broke. And so I would go in the evenings into the studio and record with Mike Hurst. And he got this idea. And I don't quite understand, really. But to re-record She's Not There... And record under another name, and it was Neil right. Macarthur, Neil Macarthur, and I, I just said okay. I didn't think anything was going to come of it, to be absolutely honest. For me, it was just sort of testing the water to see how I felt in the studio, how you know, did I want to make records again? But this track, "She's Not There" by Neil Macarthur, was a top thirty single in the UK, and I found myself, you know, back in the music business and. I realized that I had really missed it and eventually the Neil MacArthur business finished after a few months and I started recording under my real name with Rod Argent and Chris White producing and in many ways I think that's when my solo career began. I recorded an album called One Year for Epic Records uh, which would be Sony now I guess and um, there was a big hit single on that album in the UK. Sadly I've never as a solo artist had a hit record in the States, but one of the sort of unfathomable things about the music business is that you can have hits in one country and yet, and that huge hit in that country doesn't mean anything in the next country. I've never really understood that, but it's just part of the music industry and I've never managed to have a hit as a solo artist in the States. Mm.
1: Now, when you're performing your solo stuff, and then you're also performing with the zombies, uh, do you have a different mindset? Like, you're, when you're performing, like, do you perform differently, depending on what? Um, like, I, a-
2: I wouldn't say it's a sort of a black and white issue, but it, it is slightly different. Firstly, the the uh, the repertoire is almost completely different. I will only do a couple of zombie tunes, so it would usually be She's Not There in Time of the Season. I don't do any other zombie tunes. I concentrate on songs I've had success with, so chart records I've recorded, and also songs that I've written. Um, So in that sense, you know, the repertoire is completely different. But there are a lot of subtle differences. You realize when you're a solo artist, it does feel... A bit more as if everything is resting on your shoulders uh, as opposed to being in a group. And it's very subtle, but you do feel that, um, for instance, I mean, for instance, would be interviews uh, with the zombies. I might be one of two or three people doing interviews for promotion, but as a solo artist, it's all down to me. I have to, although I have people that arrange travel, hotels, promotion, marketing, people do that but i have to be constantly checking um and, and at the end of the day you know the buck stops with me when you're in a band it's slightly different it's not quite so much on your shoulders
1: so uh you mentioned odyssey and oracle it comes out after you guys break up and so you guys never you know uh, perform any of this any of those any of that album live until like decades later so when you guys actually do the do those songs, you know, so much later, what's that experience like? To you know, we're performing these songs that we put out, you know, so long ago, and never you know perform them since
2: then. Well, it is very interesting. I mean, it it's wonderful to play these songs and to get a really warm and positive reaction from an audience. When there have been times, obviously, you know, back in the late 60s and early 70s when we thought Odyssey and Oracle was forgotten. We thought it would never be played on the radio and we would never play it. And now here we are 50 years later playing to large audiences who are, you know, really, really enjoying it. So it is, it's is—it's—it's incredibly encouraging and fulfilling to play it after all this time. And, and you know, it's, it's strange the way things have worked out. A lot of things in The Zombies are a bit sort of mysterious, I think. I don't think there are many bands that have an album that was never really a success commercially at the time, but sells more year on year than it ever did, and sort of becomes a a somewhat iconic album 30 or 40 years after it was recorded. It's it's kind of a strange story, really. As a matter of interest, you know, we're going to be playing Odyssey and Oracle... Uh, later on in the tour when we come over to the States and people mm-hmm. will think because we've recorded it so many times and actually we have performed it in concert quite a few times now that we would just know, automatically know it. But this afternoon, before we did this uh, interview, I was with Rod Argent and Chris White from the original Zombies and we played Odyssey and Oracle in Rod's house. <laughs> we just played it acoustically through just to remind ourselves of, um, you know, <laughs> how yeah. the song go? Because we don't play it all the time, and you, you you have to remind yourself. I always think of golfers, you know, a professional golfer is a good golfer, but it doesn't mean that he stops practicing. Of course he practices. Perfect. And uh, music's a little bit like that, really.
1: Yeah. It's kind of an, uh, maybe a weird question, but uh, when, you, when you do a song that you did, like, uh, earlier in, your, in life, uh, does that make you feel like from that time period, or like, do the songs change a little bit uh, because you have different life experiences now uh, w- when you perform the song?
2: Well, I think, I think it can sometimes transport you back to that time. I sometimes feel when I'm singing a song, you know, I might get a, a, you know, a distinct memory from that time. It just conjures up a, a, a specific memory. Or otherwise, it might just be a general feeling of that time in my life. Um, I try, I think we all try, When we, especially when we do Odyssey and Oracle, we try and do it as authentically as we can. So we're not trying to make it different. We're trying to make it the same. But of course, we are 50 years older. So it will be slightly different. But I hasten to add that all the songs are in the original keys. So there's no moving the songs down because our, our voices have got deeper or anything like that. We play all yeah. the songs in the original keys. We play exactly the same arrangements as was on the album, and every note that was on that album is played when when we're on stage because we have extra people. We have a second keyboard player, and we have extra vocalists so that we can get those sort of big block harmonies going that we had on Odyssey and Oracle. So it will be very, very close to the, as close as we can make it to the album. Mm
1: -hmm. So uh, when you guys broke up, um, and then there there was uh, fake zombie bands that came out. I know. Perform. Yeah. yeah well, what did you think of that at the time? Like, you know. That's, well, I mean,
2: like, <laughs> me personally, um, I I suppose it was a bit frustrating, really, because we never talked about reforming the band. By the time time of the season was a hit, we were all involved in other projects, and there was never a discussion about us going out and playing. So. In some ways, maybe there was a bit of frustration there, but otherwise, I think I found it sort of vaguely amusing. Really, yeah. uh, just a bit strange that they should be going out there. And I mean, you know, I got some reports. I mean, probably some of the bands, because there was more than one. Some mm-hmm. of them were probably quite good, but some of them were not very good. And uh, <laughs> yeah. I just, I just thought it was weird. Uh, Chris White, in fact, was in New York, and he was in the offices of Rolling Stone. And they got him to phone up the manager of one of those fake, fake bands. So Chris White, the original Zombies bass player, phones up the manager of a fake Zombies band. And this manager doesn't know Chris is from the Zombies. He thinks he's from Rolling Stone. And he starts yeah. telling him a story that they wanted to honor the music of the Zombies now that the lead singer of the Zombies had been killed in a car crash. That's me. And I had a clipping. For, it was actually on the front page of Rolling Stone. And at one point, I did, I had for years, I had this clipping of this guy explaining how I died in a car crash. <laughs> uh, and sadly, I've lost it. But um, it was an interesting read. And at the end, Chris White just said to him, well, listen. You know, I'm the original bass player from the Zombies, and you're talking nonsense. And of course, the guy had to try and backtrack. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, everybody's got to make a living. And we were happy. We've we moved on to new projects. And uh, I like to see musicians working. And if that was the only work that was available to them, well, good luck to them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I'm glad that you're okay after after the uh, fatal car After crash. the car crash. Right. I okay. made a
2: miraculous recovery, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So uh so when you guys um get back together and then you also uh, record like new albums uh what's that experience like?
2: Well I mean it, it was very strange because uh it was around nineteen ninety nine or two thousand I actually had a solo band. I was out working as a solo artist at the time, and I had a keyboard player that often quite often wouldn't turn up he He had an achilles heel in that. If anyone asked him to play a gig, it could be the smallest gig in the world but the the big thing was if they asked him to play some of his songs, he would just disappear. he'd go and do that gig, and i w- I would be left with no keyboards there and on the spur of the moment, you know Rod has been a very successful producer in his time, and I didn't think he'd want to get back on the road again but I, on the spur of the moment, I just called him um, and said, "Would you fancy? I've got six dates to finish this tour?" Would you consider doing them? And he said, okay, yeah, I'd love to do them, but I only want to do the six dates. And that's how we restarted our musical relationship. But so we both were thinking this was for six dates, and here we are 20 years later. We did the six dates, really, really enjoyed it. It felt felt like we played the week before. It felt very natural. And then Rod had a fabulous studio in his house, and we started listening to some tracks that have, First of all, first off, it was some tracks he'd already half finished, and we just put my voice on those tracks. And then later on, we started recording with the musicians we were touring with, and it just seemed a very natural progression um, from going from the six dates we talked about to touring constantly, and then setting up in the studio and recording pretty much as we did back in the 60s. It it all felt very natural and. You know, Rod and I, I think, have always been very comfortable working with one another.
1: Mm. So, uh, I mentioned Hall of Fame at the beginning of the uh, the interview. Uh, so, what was the experience like uh, being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame?
2: Well, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, first of all, for us, after all these years to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame you know, it, it is it, probably when we were first nominated was the biggest surprise. But then we'd been nominated four times in five years. And you start to think we're never going to be inducted. <laughs> and then yeah. we were. So that was a huge thrill. And we turned up at the Barclay Arena in Brooklyn. And there were 17,000 people there. And a lot of those people were some of the most famous people in the music industry. So it's not, uh, it's not like it's without its own pressures. You know, it's very right. exciting. But um, you, when you stop to think about it, 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 it is quite a pressured situation. And uh, I think we went on second to last. So we had to sit there for a long time and then get up and we all made speeches. And then uh, we played, I think we played three three songs, uh, three or four songs. Uh, it was wonderful. It was an evening I will never, ever forget. It was absolutely brilliant.
1: Great. Uh, I have a few questions here from um, from social media when I announce you're coming on. I'm just ask a couple of them. Uh, Robert Budzinski wants to know um, about recording at Abbey Road Studio uh, days after Sgt. Pepper's.
2: Well, that's right. Um, the, zombie, the the Beatles had just finished playing, Sergeant, uh, recording Sgt. Pepper of like a day or two days before we went in. We were the next band into Abbey Road. Mostly they recorded in Studio 2. And we recorded exclusively in Studio 3, but they did record some things in Studio 3. They mostly recorded with Jeff Emmerich, wonderful uh, recording engineer, and we used Jeff and we also used Peter Vince. So we had two of the very best recording engineers in the world at that time to help us through those sessions. And of course, famously, John Lennon left his Mellotron behind in Studio 3, and we, we just used it. If you listen to Odyssey and Oracle, there's Mellotron all over that album. And um, that Mellotron belonged to John Lennon, but he wasn't there, so we just used it. <laughs> I, yeah. We were all huge fans of the Beatles. And the thought that his Mellotron was there, and there were all sorts of percussion instruments lying around on the floor, you know, tambourines, maracas, and so forth, uh, that they were there, they were left from the zombies. From, I keep saying zombies, and I mean Beatles. They were left there from the Beatles. And, you know, even though we were in a band, we'd had hit records, we were still huge fans of the Beatles. And it, it was a real thrill to be in Abbey Road at that time, just after they'd left, and to work with the same engineers that they'd been working with. We couldn't have been in a better uh, situation studio-wise. It, it was fantastic. It was mostly the summer of 67.
1: Ask one more here. Jake wants to know uh, what was Otto Preminger like uh, on Bunny Lake is missing.
2: Well, he's a bit of a a bit of a dictator. He uh-huh. like he liked to shout a lot, and um, he used to shout at his assistants. You know, he had a whole entourage with him, and we noticed he actually got one lady crying at one point because he was shouting something. He was very aggressive, but it didn't really work with us because you know. We were only there for two days, I mean these people that their their whole careers depended on him. Right. And we just drifted him for a couple of days and sang a couple of songs. And I can remember Rod saying something to the the effect of and he's only a young guy, he's twenty or twenty one. And he said to Otto Preminger, Don't you ever speak to me like that again and if you do, we're off and actually Otto calmed down after that. He was you know, he was much more mild with us after that. You know, sometimes you've got to judge people by their results. So that was his method. You know, he was he was a very aggressive bloke, but he was involved in making some classic, wonderful films. So if it worked, great. But for us, just drifting into uh, a, a studio with him for a couple of days, it was a bit heavy going. So we, uh, we just ignored him, really.
1: <laughs> yeah well I really appreciate coming on and I'm looking forward to seeing you guys uh, August 23rd at the Cabot in, in Beverly Mass and uh, it's been uh, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show
2: thanks Neil, it's been great talking to you thanks for having me on the show and really looking forward to seeing you and I hope many of your listeners will come and see us as well definitely cheers man, bye,
0: bye. it's the time of the season Love runs high in this time, give it to me easy And let me try with pleasured hands To take you in the sun to promised lands To show you everyone Who should daddy be? Is he rich like me? Does he take us any time? time to show show you what you need to live? Tell it to me slowly. Tell you why, I really want to know. A season for love